This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. So good afternoon. I'm Denise Hurd. I'm um, a professor in the School of Public Health, and I'm also the associate director of the Othering and Belonging Institute here at UC Berkeley. And so I'm really happy to welcome you here today for a talk by Professor Deirdre Cooper Owens. She's going to be talking about what genealogies reveal slavery, race, and American gynecology. Um, the talk is part of the Other and Belonging Institute's Research to Impact series, and we focus on developing conversations and hearing from scholars and researchers uh, on various dimensions related to inclusiveness and social justice in the society. So given our focus in the Institute as a whole on human rights and justice, we will begin today's event with a land acknowledgement uh, to the indigenous people uh, who made our presence at this university possible. So we recognize that UC Berkeley sits on the territory of the Huchin, the ancestral and unceded land of the Chocheno Ohlone, the successors of the historic and sovereign Verona Band of Alameda County. This land was and continues to be of great importance to the Ohlone people. We recognize that every member of the Berkeley community has and continues to, be, to benefit from the use and occupation of this land since the institution's founding in 1868. Consistent with our values of community and diversity, we have a responsibility to acknowledge and make visible the university's relationship to Native peoples. By offering this land acknowledgement, we affirm indigenous sovereignty and will work to, up, to hold the University of California, Berkeley, more accountable to the needs of American Indians and indigenous peoples. I'd also like to thank the staff at the Othering and Belonging Institute, including Takia Franklin, who contributed to this event, as well as the staff here at the Bonneteo Auditorium. So this year, our, our series that we hold every year uh, on research to impact is focusing on the importance of commemorating the 400th anniversary of the arrival of African slaves to the, US, to the, to the American colonies that later formed the basis of the United States of America. We began uh, the academic year, I don't know how many of you are with us, that were with us back in August, uh, where we had a full day symposium on the legacy of slavery, uh, on the legacy of slavery. So this semester we're having conversations around specific topics relevant to the research areas of our faculty clusters, uh, which include educational inequalities, uh, economic disparities, religious diversity, challenges to democracy, disability studies, and inclusion of, of uh, LGBTQ populations and health inequalities. And so all of those talks and all of those other areas are coming up this spring, so be on the lookout for them. So the talk today is sponsored by our Health and Equities uh, cluster, um, and it's chaired by Professor Osagi Obasogi. Osagi didn't want to say anything, but he should at least stand up. <laughs> <laughs> 
So um, <clears throat> I'm a medical anthropologist. I've been a longtime member of this cluster, and I teach in this area. And so I know that um, the impact of slavery has had a tremendous effect on the practice of medicine and, and on public health. All of us working and doing research in this field are aware of the tremendous gaps um, in health, in black and white health status, that are partially shaped by um, the lack of health care access and quality. And that lack of health care access and quality is embedded in a larger context of structural and institutional racism. And so that template of structural and institutional racism in medicine was developed and practiced in slavery and includes a strong belief on the inherent biological differences between African Americans and whites. In other words, uh, the belief that the races constitute separate species and also the belief that African Americans are biologically inferior. So these beliefs were used to justify political and social domination in the slave-based caste system in America. Examples of these beliefs include those of Benjamin Rush, who was considered the founding father of medicine. He taught that blackness was a form of leprosy. Other writers of the day claimed that African Americans were less likely to feel pain and can tolerate heat better than whites, and these beliefs are alive and well today, unfortunately. For example, in a recent survey of 222 white medical students and residents, about half endorsed false beliefs about biological differences between blacks and whites. And those who did also perceived blacks as feeling less pain than whites and were more likely to suggest inappropriate medical treatment for black patients. Uh, and this was according to a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In addition, as part of these belief systems and practices, unethical experimentation on African Americans was a hallmark of slavery that continues to haunt medicine to this day and to also contribute to the poor health status and early mortality of contemporary African Americans. Professor Cooper Owen's work provides much needed illumination on one of the most important areas of the impact of slavery on medical research and of the oppression of black women in developing the American medicine, American medicine and gynecology, American reproductive medicine and gynecology. So we're really thrilled to have her here today. So I'd now like to, to welcome my colleague, Anu, Professor Anu Gomez, to the stage, who is a member of the Health Disparities Faculty Cluster and also of our Reproductive Justice Working Group. And she will introduce Professor Kupo Owens. Good afternoon, everyone. So it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens. Dr. Cooper Owens is the Charles and Linda Wilson Professor in the History of Medicine and Director of the Humanities and Medicine Program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She is also an Organization of American Historians Distinguished Lecturer. A popular public speaker, she has published essays, book chapters, and blog pieces on a number of issues that concern African-American experiences. Her first book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, won the 2018 Darlene Clark Hine Book Award from the Organization of American Historians as the best book written in African-American women's and gender history. Dr. Cooper Owens is also the director of the Program in African-American History at the Library Company of Philadelphia, the country's oldest cultural institution. Mm -hmm. Currently, she is working on a second book project that examines mental illness during the era of U.S. slavery and also is writing a popular biography of Harriet Tubman that examines her through the lens of disability. 
As uh, Time Magazine has called her one of the country's most explained experts, ex I'm sorry, acclaimed experts in U.S. history, and she's steadily working towards making history more accessible and inspiring for all. She believes that the job of the historian is to break the chains of ignorance, one lecture, one book, and one lesson plan at a time. <laughs> we are so lucky today to hear her talk about her work on the racialized history of reproductive medicine and the, way that, the ways that it informs contemporary medical racism. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Cooper Owens. Great, it's so wonderful to be here. I um, went to your rival to UCLA in the early 2000s, and so I had never stepped foot on Berkeley's campus, but it's a beautiful campus. Um, thank you for having me. So I'd like to first start with um, how I came to this project, because initially, when I began dissertation research, and that was, I don't know, maybe 2005-ish, people were like, I don't understand, slavery and gynecology, I mean, what does that have to do with each other? Because at that time, we didn't really know about Henrietta Lacks. We only knew about Tuskegee. And so I remember I was moderating a conversation between uh, Janetta Cole and James Lawson, a civil rights pioneer in LA, and like any good, moderator as opposed to, I read a book, Janetta Cole and Beverly Guy Scheftel, who was then a professor at Spelman, had written called Gender Talk. And I was also taking, bless their hearts, um, a really boring class. <laughs> I'm not going to name the historians, but it was on the scientific revolution. And I was like, if I read one more page about the steam engine, I'm going to tear my hair out. <laughs> and so I was like, why am I taking this class? I don't do history of science. And so we're reading Gender Talk in the middle of the book there were about two or three sentences. And it mentioned this guy I had never heard of before, James Marion Sims, who was known as the father of American gynecology. And it also mentioned his pioneering work on experimental, um, uh, 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 pioneering experimental work on enslaved women. So I thought, this is weird, because A, I had a bachelor's degree from a black women's college, not Spelman, Bennett College, and <laughs> and a master's degree in African-American studies from Clark Atlanta University. So I thought here I was a graduate of two HBCUs, a historically black colleges and universities, and had never heard of this. So I remember calling my mother, who has a degree in professional biology and, and was a science teacher at the time, and I was like, mother, had you ever heard of this guy and you know, experiments on slaves? And she said, no. And this is before the big debate about slave or enslaved. Back then we were saying slaves, right? So she was like, no. And so I thought, I think this is a really good dissertation project. And so here we are 15 years later, and you know, I am talking about a subject where people are still shocked about the intersection of slavery and this particular branch of medicine. The, uh, so I, I like to give that story because I'm also really interested in laying out points of origin. And so that's where what genealogies reveal comes from, right? There's a political point where I want us to really understand that although there had been a branch of medicine called gynecology and obstetrics long before Sims had come along, the point of origin that makes, I think, the United States and the, the kind of Atlantic world really important is many of the, you know, what were then called pioneering surgical developments were literally done on the bodies of enslaved women. And so I also have a personal reason. Um, I grew up in, in South Carolina and Washington, D.C., and my father worked for the National Archives for over 30 years. And my mother was like many black women in the late 70s. Roots came on, and she was hooked. 
And so literally from now until then, my mother has been researching our family's history, going all the way back to South Carolina to the 18th century when it was still a colony. So genealogy has also been something that has been very present in my life, and it helps to provide context, which is what historians are supposed to do, right? So I state all of that because I want us to begin on on the same page. So number one, I hope this is the clicker. All right, good, because I need to walk around. I have a cold. That's the other thing Berkeley gave me, too, is a cold. (laughs) So how did I, a historian of slavery who had never, I mean, this is a sad thing to admit, but I had never taken a class on U.S. slavery or medicine when I was at UCLA, and yet here I am, a historian of medicine and slavery, right? How did I become interested in this branch of medicine, and also why was it relevant? How is it still relevant? Why does it resonate for so many people? Because I'll be honest with you, when I was studying, you know, people were kind of, this is before the budget crisis of the UC system and before the market kind of fell through. You know, people were like, oh, she'll get a job. She does slavery. There's always a need for a slavery historian. You know, and so I don't necessarily know if people were really interested in the topic. But all of a sudden, this topic, and Sims in, in particular, begins to resonate for a lot of Americans. And I happened to be at the, in, the right time, in the right place at the right time. So I was living in Brooklyn, New York, and working at Queens College. And I remember in, I think it was 2017, I started to get these calls and DMs, and I don't get a lot of DMs, I'm middle aged. I'm married. My DMs are always like, can you do a talk at this place, right? It's never anything scintillating. So I'm like, what in the world is going on? And for those who might be my age or older, DMs are direct messages into Twitter or Facebook. So I'm getting all of these messages that I typically don't get. And I'm like, what's going on? And so people are really curious whether I had anything to do with this. So this slide here is a picture of the James Marion Sims' statue that was, notice the past tense, um, at the easternmost corner of Central Park. And and this part of Central Park is in East Harlem. And so it's a largely um, Latinx and Afro-Latinx community. And it is also directly across, or was directly across from the New York Academy of Medicine, where Sims was a very prominent member. So... People are like, did you organize this? And I'm like, organize what? So it's the F white supremacy rally. And you can look to my far left in the corner, there's like a red, black, and green fist that has BYP 100, the Black Youth Project 100. I couldn't have been involved if I wanted to because the cutoff age is 30. And that shit passed many moons ago. So I was like, no, I don't know. What's, what's going on? Well, this is the thing. All across the country, especially in the South, College students, the age of many of you in here, had been demanding that Confederate statues be removed from their campus. Or they had been vandalizing or trying to topple them themselves. So, of course, those in the North thought we're safe, except for James Marion Sims. And the work of Marina Ortiz, who was the founder of the East Harlem Preservation Society, she had been... Uh, since about 2008 is when I first learned of her work, she had been steadily calling for his removal, right? So this happens. All of a sudden, my editor from UGA Press contacts me. He said, I think we need to ride this wave. And I'm like, what wave? 
And he was like, it's going to blow up. We're going to release your book two months early. I was like, oh, okay. And literally like that, I was transformed to the country's foremost historian on James Marion Sims. <laughs> and so my book is actually not about Sims at all, right? But I wanted to do something. I wanted to be able to, just like at the beginning of this talk, I wanted to be able to provide context. Because I knew journalists would ask me one question. Should the statue stay or should it be removed? And that's not what I was motivated to write about. I'm really interested in the lives of these historical actors, but more importantly, what's the legacy that has been left? What do we have to contend with? And so I didn't play nice, right? So this is a, a picture many of you probably have seen. If you haven't, this is what made the issue, even Marina Ortiz's work, kind of blow up. Um, Jewel Cadet, who is the person with the head wrap, was the vice president of the New York chapter of the uh, Black Youth Project 100. She staged this artistic and political protest. And so it brought a lot of attention to this particular contentious issue around Sims. Well, April 17th, 2018, almost a year later, my DMs are blowing up again. I'm getting text messages. Oh my God, did you have anything to do with this? Do you know what's happening? I'm like, what are you talking about? A, it was my birthday. And clearly, I thought people loved me. They didn't. They were worried about Sims. Sims statue was being removed. And I was like, my God. So there were a couple of things as a historian I didn't want to do. I didn't want to focus solely on Sims because my book was about the patients. But I recognized Sims would be the hook. And so I had to discuss him. The other issue was, for me, how do I remove myself from the safety of talking about dead people? I mean, a, a part of what I do and a part of the reason I was attracted to the 19th century, I was a journalism major in undergrad, a broadcast journalism major at that. And as much as I like talking, I didn't, I didn't like talking kind of face to face trying to extract information because I hated when people would lie to me or you could tell they were performing. And so there was something about the comfort and safety of dealing with people where I had to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And so for most historians who deal with dead folk, we don't often get asked our opinions about present day issues. And so I was really safe until I started doing these talks. And I started to have activists and medical practitioners and they were like, thank you very much. This is interesting. So now what are we going to do about maternal morbidity? What are we going to do about infant mortality? What are we going to do about these inequities? So I had to talk about Sims and I had to be able to have a conversation where I could put the past in literally intersected with the present. Right. And so that's the beauty of the second life of medical bondage. Right. Because this dies down. This stuff is sensationalism. This dies down after a while, and the journalists will stop calling, and nobody's really asking you, asking you your opinion. The book literally gets a second life when doulas and midwives and nurses and OBGYNs and social justice activists, reproductive justice activists, birth, birthing justice activists were really interested on, in understanding the history right, and being able to make this information applicable to the work that they're doing today. And so this has literally been kind of the second life of medical bondage. And a large part of why I didn't want to take the sensationalist track and solely focus on his statue was because I didn't like the way that the questions were often set up. They were always set up either or. I come from uh, African-American uh, studies background for my master's degree. 
And we always kind of shake our heads at the either or binary because things are always more complicated than that. So if you say, was Sims a monster or did he, was he some benevolent healer of women, right? The answers can be yes or no. I wasn't interested in that because for me, this was about making Sims exceptional. And Sims was not exceptional at all. And I remember having to say this at the College of Charleston where there is still an active James Marion Sims society. And the room was packed and it was like a little contingent of like these elderly white men with their arms folded looking at me. And I was like, oh, Lord. But at the end, they did a slow clap and they were like, very good. I learned a lot. So even they were convinced, right, that Sims wasn't exceptional. And the reason that I show Sims wasn't exceptional is because there had already been a thriving medical and cultural practice that Sims inherited. Right. Dr. Hurd talked about uh, uh, Benjamin Rush. And I was like, wait, did she read my did she read my talk? Because the father of American medicine. Right. Is doing the same thing. Black people are inherently different, except his cure for black people with leprosy was white people must show them a portion twofold of their humanity. So that eventually, because of the cold weather, and this is all based on Hippocratic medicine, right, they can eventually kind of outgrow the um, defect of blackness, right? So this this had already been in the air, in the Atlantic world. And so I was very clear to begin chapter one with an assessment of all the folk who came before Sims to show, in fact, he wasn't that exceptional. And so I began with these folk. Right. Some of you know the names. Some of you might not be familiar with the names, but I start off with Georges Cuvier and his relationship to Sarthi Bartman or Sarah Bartman, who was derisively known as the hot and tight Venus. Once again, I wasn't interested in the kind of spectacle of Bartman as this kind of sideshow circus, you know, freak that she became, unfortunately, in Europe. I was really interested in how did Cuvier think about, write about, treat this woman as a medical specimen, because that's how he was assessing her. And then, right, I, I left France and I concentrated on this new nation called the United States of America. And Ephraim McDowell, another father, right, father of the variotomy. So he was the person who placed America, the United States, on the map medically, although he was derided. And I'll get into him a little bit. But he removed, uh, he was known for removing ovarian tumors and also performing on record the first successful abdominal incision, right, in surgery. And the patient lives. Jean-Peter Matar, early pioneer of vesicle vaginal fistula. That's the operation, and I'll explain what that is in a few, um, that James Marion Sims pioneered. Jean-Peter Matar had done the same surgery about almost a decade before. And so he was also known as the father of American plastic surgery because of his work on the cleft palate. And then Francois-Marie Provost, I don't have a whole lot of information on him because most of the work he did was, um, it was secluded in in some cases and also in the 18th century, but he becomes known as the father of the C-section. Why is he so important? He was French born just like Cuvier and he goes to France's most um, valuable economically worthy uh, colony. And at the time it was Haiti. And he performs experimental surgeries on enslaved pregnant women to perform C-sections. Of course, many die. 
There's a thing that happened in 1804, and it wasn't quite safe for him to be there. It was called the Haitian Revolution. So he skedaddles and goes to another former French colony, Louisiana. And guess what he does? Performs the same experimental work on enslaved women, right? Until he dies in, in the antebellum era. So what I wanted to show was literally from the 18th century on, Sims is doing what others have done. And it's not a kind of, well, he was just a product of his environment and of the age. It's not that at all. What I wanted to show was, right, he is literally reading the textbooks, the writings, getting trained by the very men who were colleagues of these men, right? And that if we implicate Sims, you really have to implicate the entire system and structure. Because Sims makes it easy to make him a historical boogeyman. And I'm not interested in that because the way that structural racism is set up, it's not about the individual. It's about the actual structure. And so when you see the structure of American gynecology was so deeply involved in slavery, we then have to pull apart those pieces, right, as opposed to focusing on Sims. And so that's why I did not want him to be the central figure. And I started chapter one with, right, a, a kind of examination and excavation of the examination of their lives, but also excavation of their work. But I also wanted to do a little thing called revisionist history. You know, it's always been thrown about to scholars. I'm you're Berkeley, so I know y'all are aware of revisionist history labels. You elite liberals, you. So I was like, let me take this label and own it and wear it because the information had always been wrong. And you know, people don't sometimes listen to grad students. So I knew when I had the book, I was like, the first word, first sentence on the first page will be, the first hospital for women was on a little slave farm in Mount Meigs, Alabama. Because I was revising inaccurate information, not based on what I think. It's based on what Sims wrote in his autobiography and also his article. And I even have pictures. Like, I like to bring receipts, right? So, all right. So with that said, let's start, right? Now I can put on my professorial cap and we can go. All right, so Sarhi Bartman, the, so known as the, the Hottentot Venus, unfortunately, born in South Africa. She was a Khoi Khoi woman. She was enslaved. She was more domestic slave. Um, at 17 years old, she was sold by her owner to his brother and business partner. The owner's brother's uh, business partner was an Englishman. Now, the earlier history was Sarchi Bartman was a smart woman. And so in conversation with these, uh, these men, she decided that she would leave South Africa and go to Europe where she could become famous. And I'm like, so a woman who was about to get married, who didn't speak English, in fact, lived on, on a, in a country near the Indian Ocean, might not have been aware there was an Atlantic Ocean, decides, oh, yeah, right before her wedding, to just leave the only place that's home and go to Europe to make money, once again, I'm revising the history, right? Because that's not accurate, and that's not how slavery works. So Sarhi Bartman was sold by her owner to his brother and his business partner. She goes over to Europe. She is literally made into this, this freak, right? She has to perform and dance and, and present herself uh, nude or partially nude. And about two years later, she's sold to uh, a Frenchman who then is in conversation with Cuvier and she's placed in a menagerie. That's a place where plants and animals 
are housed and displayed. And so you can see, and the reason I picked this uh, illustration is not to kind of reinscribe the objectification, but to show the ways that these European folk are fascinated and also repulsed by her, right? And they, they're largely fascinated and repulsed because she has a big butt. It's, it's literally that simple. To the point where her physical structure is given a medical condition. She is called, uh, said to have steel tapesia, an enlargement of the buttocks. And I was like, well, Lord, that's me and every person and woman in my family, right? So they literally make her physical frame a medical condition, right? So this is the way for me to start thinking about how are, how are people thinking about Bartman in terms of medicine and biology? And so you see someone here who wants to touch, right, touch her buttocks. Another woman is literally crouched, right, looking at her knees, gazing. There's someone trying to look at what's underneath the flap because Hottentot women were said to have a Hottentot flap or an elongated labia because they were so different, supposedly, right, than white women. And there's even someone from my far left here who is trying to tighten the gaze with a monocle. Right? I mean, it's a, an illustration that symbolizes kind of everything that we, we read, that we see about how these men, particularly these men of science and medicine, were writing about black women's bodies. Oh, I'm sorry, and I forgot. Um, so Cuvier, when she is in the menagerie at the National Museum of Paris, Cuvier is intent on trying to examine Bartman. And she resists, she resists, she resists. And eventually dies at the age of 25. Lived a really hard life. Engaged in sex work, um, overuses alcohol, and has venereal diseases, as they were called then. Just a really rough, a rough life for someone who was so young. And when she dies, Cuvier has control of her body, her cadaver. And he performs an autopsy. And he discovers there's no hot and tot hood. In fact, her skeleton looks like any other person. And so he removes her brain, he preserves it, puts it in a bell jar. He cuts out her genitalia, preserves it, puts it in a bell jar. Takes out her skeleton, preserves it. It's on display and also used for educational purposes in the museum, National Museum of France until 1974. She dies at the beginning of the 19th century. And just as an aside, when South Africans are finally, you know, and rightfully angry, they're like, we want her remains. We want to bury her according to her koi koi custom. France has the audacity to say, we don't know if you have the infrastructure to be able to, to hold her remains. Number one, they want to hold it. They want to bury her. And you lost her remains in 1974. And so thankfully, um, in the 21st century, her remains were sent back to South Africa. For me, it was interesting, though, the ways in which Sarhi Bartman is now seen as a kind of pathological or different human being, perhaps species. We don't know. They're trying to figure it out. And what it does, right, through these notes and these writings, it sets the stage for how black women and enslaved people would be written about, thought about, treated, right, for centuries uh, to come. And this brings us to Ephraim McDowell. Virginia born to an elite family. He uh, then moves, as a child, moves with his family to the West, Kentucky, 
And he decides as a young man that he wants to become a doctor. And so his family says, okay. And back then you didn't have to go to med school. So he and a, a friend decide they are going to apprentice for the local doctor. And I'm giving you this information so that you can hold on to it because it makes sense. Remember, I like context. The doctor is known as the town drunk as well. So they're apprenticing for the doctor. And they're upset because apprentices and students at that time cannot touch patients. They literally have to just stand there and observe the doctor treat patients, examine patients. And they're getting their information from observation and reading. And so he, McDowell and his friend are sick of this. And they decide, okay, we, wanna, we actually want to learn about the body and anatomy and, and touch patients. They learn of the death of a recently expired enslaved man. And so in the dark of night, they dig up this man's grave. It was actually a thing. It was called grave robbing, right? So they dig up a grave and they exhume the man's body and they perform an autopsy on the cadaver. But this is a small town. And, you know, I grew up in a really small town in South Carolina. People are always watching you. Small towns then and now, somebody is always like this. So they, of course, you see somebody digging up a body that had recently expired. And so folk tell. They, I mean, they run and tell. And when McDowell and his friend are confronted, they blame it on the doctor. Because, of course, people will believe the town drunk did this. But the doctor has witnesses. And so the townsfolk are livid. McDowell's parents did what lots of folk do. They sent him away to the best medical school in the Western world, Edinburgh. Right? So that's his punishment. You get to go to Edinburgh to medical school. And so he doesn't finish his course of study, but he comes back. He establishes his practice. And a white woman comes in a few years later, Mrs. Merrill. No, I'm sorry, Mary uh, Jane Todd Crawford, excuse me. Mary Jane Todd Crawford comes in and she, is, uh, she describes intense abdominal pain. And so her stomach is also swollen. And so he at first is, you know, wondering if she's pregnant. And she says, no, I had children before. It doesn't feel like a pregnancy. And I'm in so much pain. And so after speaking with her and her husband, the doctor decides that he'll need to perform surgery. But remember, he has a reputation. The townsfolk are not really that trusting of him because he was known as a grave robber. And so they catch wind of this and they want to tar and feather this man. So what he does he and Mrs. Todd Crawford and her husband hatch a plan that on Christmas morning in 1809, she will come to his home, which also serves as his hospital, and he'll perform surgery then at 7 a.m. Because it's Christmas morning, people are going to be sleeping with their families in church, right? They're not going to be out. And he performs a surgery that lasts a little bit over 20 minutes. He removes an ovarian tumor that was almost 22 pounds, and it was an abdominal-based incision. No anesthesia, none of that, right? Because, I mean, it was, it's 1809. And this is the thing. Guess how people are operated on in 1809? Conscious. What's the best way to know if your patient isn't going to bleed out or die? They can move. They can scream. They can resist. So this is one of the things that I had to tell a lot of folk. Jewel Cadet, the woman with the head wrap, very dear friend of mine. But when she was like, that man didn't give them anesthesia, I was like, anesthesiology wasn't a branch of medicine. So for a historian of medicine, if I made that the center of my critique, I would have been laughed out. 
the book would have been panned. Because I'm talking about something that folk who studied the 19th century already know. You don't want your patient to bleed out or be asleep for we don't know how long. So this is why they always had teams of surgical assistants to hold the patient down, right? That's, that's surgery. That was surgery back then. So she survives. She was like in her late 30s, early 40s at this time. The woman lives until her 70s. So one would think he would run off and report this. Nope. He wants to make sure that he has perfected this surgical technique. So Ephraim McDowell goes across the county in Danville, uh, Danbury, excuse me, Kentucky, and he gets about five cases. All of them negresses, as they were called in the article. One might have been a free woman of color, but everybody else enslaved. And he performs these experiments from 1809 till around 1816, 1817. One person even dies. Writes about it. One would think, uh-oh, the United States is getting ready to get on the map. Nope, he is derided. And he is derided in one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, The Lancet. A Dr. Johnson even says, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know, he says, well, of course you, you will perform these experiments on negresses. They bear, in, they bear the cutting of the knife with impunity, like, like cats, no, I'm sorry, like dogs and rabbits. Right. So they bear cutting like dogs and rabbits. And so once again, that's another moment where people are like, and Sims came up with this idea that black people didn't ex experience. pain." I'm like, no, it was there. People just believed black folk didn't experience pain for lots of reasons, thicker skin. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Right. So this is Ephraim McDowell. John Peter Matara, another name that's not as well known. Virginia born, like McDowell, to a family who was considered pretty elite. He even founds a medical school, Randolph-Macon uh, Medical College. It's no longer in existence, but he even founds a medical school. And Matower, who was a slave owner, like McDowell, that's the other thing that these men have in common. They all were slave owners and physicians. Matower is really confounded by this condition, vesicovaginal fistula, right? Today it's called obstetrical fistula. There's a pretty famous fistula hospital in Ethiopia. People kind of learned about it from Oprah a few years ago. So it's essentially the same condition. And what would happen is a woman is giving birth and it's considered a protracted uh, labor process. And what that means is it's really long, lasts anywhere on an average two, three days. And so as you're trying to expel the fetus, out, there's a lot of friction that goes on, especially in the upper vaginal area. And that friction creates fistula or holes. The bladder or vesico is, is right above. And so the end result is incontinence. You can't die. It's, it's not a deadly condition, but it was really common. And as we know, women were having a lot of babies and also um, a lot of miscarriages as well. So there were two women, young women, around the age of 19 or 20. One was an enslaved woman, one was a white woman. And Matower decides he's going to try to repair the fistula, to suture the fistula. And so he begins experiments on them. And so he does the same thing for the white patient and the black patient, right? Same technique. The white patient has a chance to um, recuperate in the lying in hospital, 
That means a hospital for pregnant women or those who had recently given birth. Black patient, same thing. White patient is then cured, as he says, she's fixed. The black patient isn't. And for me, I'm thinking about this, and here's where the kind of social historian side of me, as a historian of slavery and women's history, I'm really interested in what this means between freedom and unfreedom. And for eight trials, right, so a matter of years, Matawa continues to try to suture this woman and repair the fistula, and it doesn't work. And he finally, in the 1830s, writes an article, publishes an article in the American Journal of Medical Sciences, the same article, uh, same journal that Sims publishes in. And he says, and it's really transparent, you know, and with his frustration, but for me, as a modern historian, I was so happy, right, about his honesty, because he says, the patient could have been cured in a matter of time had she stopped engaging in sexual intercourse. Sir, you own slaves. What enslaved woman can say, no, honey, not tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm recuperating. It, they don't have control, they don't own themselves. You have let, like legally defined them as movable property, not even as human beings. She doesn't have control over her own healing. And so you're saying if she stopped engaging in sexual intercourse, she could have been healed. What this tells me is the difference between unfreedom and freedom is that when you are not free, when you are owned right, by someone else, you don't even have the luxury of not engaging in sexual intercourse to heal yourself, to be allowed to be, to be healed. right? And so for me as a historian of slavery, it was a really telling moment where there was no euphemistic language None of that used in his frustration, right? He literally told us why she couldn't be healed. Once again, right? Well before Sims. The person everybody's interested in, right? James Marion Sims. Unlike the others, he was not born into an elite family, kind of middling class, uh, born in upcountry South Carolina. And he first begins his medical study against his father's wishes at a medical college in, in South Carolina. He is really disappointed with the course of study. And so he goes up north to Philadelphia, to Thomas Jefferson University there, uh, completes his degree, moves back to South Carolina, and starts a kind of bustling medical practice. What happens is, and I've, and I've had folk tell me about a book, I'm not gonna say the name of it, um, but there's a book where you know this author, and it's also self-published, where the author says, Sims murdered two Negro infants. No, you had a really high chance of dying if you went to any doctor in the 19th century, which is why people hated to go to doctors in the 19th century. Because you go to a doctor, you might not come out alive. It was exploratory, it was risky. And so these uh, two Negro infants had what was called Tristmus nascentium. Essentially, uh, in the 19th century, it's called lockjaw. And so the, the Negro infants died, but it's, it just mars his reputation because nobody wants to go to a doctor where patients are dying. And so he leaves, moves out west with his family to Alabama. And Sims writes in his uh, autobiography, The Story of My Life, uh, he had to build up his reputation beginning with the rabble of society, poor whites, Jews, uh, and free inwards. Right? This is from his bio, uh, autobiography. So after he builds up his reputation, 
he can then create his own hospital and his life changes when he just much like Ephraim McDowell, when a white woman comes to him, a Mrs. Merrill, who had fallen off a horse. After asking Mrs. Merrill, who was in extreme pain, can I examine you? Because it also wasn't normal for a 19th century male doctor to examine, vaginally examine a woman patient. So she gives her consent. And because once again, she gives consent because she can, because she's free and she's white, right? Consent didn't exist for enslaved people. So oftentimes in the 21st pe uh, century, people are like, and he, he didn't ask these enslaved people's consent. I'm like, they were owned. You don't ask people who are considered legal property whether they consent to anything. You go to their owners. So once again, I can't make that the center point of my scholarship because my peers would deride me. Because that's kind of, for us as historians, that's not a topic. It's not that it's not important, but it's already established if you are a scholar of slavery, consent is not a thing for people who were enslaved, right? Just legally. So he asked this woman, she says yes. When he vaginally examines her, he says, essentially this light bulb, moment, uh, light bulb you know, experience happens where he is reminded of a lecture he attended when he was at Thomas Jefferson, where if you allow through the vaginal opening, right, um, a wide enough space, the rush of air can reverse the uterus. I know, I always get last. That's what he wrote. Read it, I'm telling you, read, his, read his, uh, his memoir. Every time I say this in front of medical practitioners, they laugh, right? So he opens her up and a rush of air happens. He says she was even so embarrassed because the, it made her sound like flatulence. And she thanked him because now her uterus was made right side up. And she walked up out of there, you know, happy. But this is a moment where he now becomes, right, um, a doctor of women's you know, troubles. There was an enslaved woman who had, who had been sent by her owner a day or two before in this hospital. She suffered from vaginal vesic uh, vesicle vaginal fistula. And her owner rightly wanted her repaired because this is the other thing, if I can put on my colonial history cap. European society for millennia, especially Western Europe, had a rule if you were in a legitimate marriage or partnership, children inherited the status of their fathers. All of a sudden, you find out how lucrative slavery is in these British colonial spaces, and you change the rules in the 1680s. And you say, wait a minute, now children inherit, who are born to enslaved women, inherit the condition of the mother. Because guess who the daddies were often? So they didn't care about the paternity. A white man could be the daddy, the, a black man, an indigenous man. But those men might have been free. So what that means is a black woman now passes on the condition of her servitude to her child. Upends everything that a nation that was supposedly built on traditions, right, and heritage, was supposed to hold dear, except when money was involved. And now it's turned on its head. So this woman is sent by her owner because he knows, right? Her womb literally carries his wealth. And so now he needs her to be repaired. And Sims initially before Mrs. Merrill Kane said, I can't help you. So, you know, he said, you can spend the night here, but you got to go back to your owner, to your, to your uh, slave farm or plantation. But after this supposed 
uh, intervention with Mrs. Merrill, he says, oh my gosh, I, if I could see, and he writes this, as no man had seen before, I might be able to solve this condition. So he takes two pewter spoons and he opens up this enslaved woman's vaginal area so that he can see, as he says, with his nose as close, right, to his, my nose was as close to her as it was on my face. And I saw as no man had seen before and he could see the holes, he could see the fistula. Now, later those two spoons, uh, two pewter spoons becomes a, a duckbill speculum, but that he calls the sim speculum. If anybody has ever had a pap smear, that's the template. He didn't create the speculum, but he perfects it, right? So he then, once again, I'm using Sims's words. I canvass the county for cases. I get about a half, a little more than a half dozen cases, all of enslaved women. Now this is where that, remember that either or question? Because there are a couple of scholars, there are not a whole lot of them. A couple of scholars who would say, we, anybody who wants to you know, say Sims was not at least caring and benevolent, he takes on the cost of these enslaved women on his own. Sims was not a rich man. And yes, he was a slave owner, but he only owned a few. No, what Sims did was what a lot of slave owners did. He went to their owners and he said, if you allow me to lease these slaves and help to repair them, I'll take on the cost. It had nothing to do with his benevolence. It had everything to do with, I'm not going to damage your property. And so Sims had a, a, also, there was a cost-benefit analysis. If he can solve this condition, that means wealth can continue to be generated, right? So Sims collects these cases, and he says, I had a little hospital built for myself. Now you see why I had to change that lie that said the first hospital was, the first hospital for women was created in 1855 in New York. It was the New York State Hospital for Women. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Sims wrote, I had to have a little hospital built for myself. And this was it. Now this is a picture from 1895, but this was the same hospital where those experimental surgeries were began. And in 1895, it was sold to Nathan Bozeman, who was one of his surgical assistants. And it was still being used for Negroes at the turn of the century. Here's a little black girl here. There's a black woman who's washing clothes and an elderly black man sitting on the porch. Right. So in Mount Meigs, Alabama, he later finishes the experiments in Montgomery. So a lot of things come out of this almost five year experimental trial. The perfection of the sim speculum. He eventually cures, right, in his language, or finds a, a fix for vesicle vaginal fistula. He tried everything. He tried silk sutures, which is what uh, John Peter Matower had used. He tried lead sutures. Eventually, he finds that silver sutures work best. Two and a half years after these experiments, right, he's failing. Nobody's being healed. These women are responding to these, these experimental surgical uh, developments in, you know, in various ways, right? Either they're not being healed or their bodies are responding negatively. And so his two white surgical assistants leave him. And this is the other point of contention. People are like, and can you believe Sims made these enslaved women work for him? Yeah. What do you think slaves did? It's an economic labor system. 
Do you think because the enslaved person got sick, the owner is going to say, well, you go on and take a little nap. What do you need from me? They worked. Healthy, sick, it didn't matter. And so he did what any slave owner would do. He made his enslaved patients his nurses and surgical assistants. But now this is where I start to think about things. It's a, women's, a woman's historian and also a historian of medicine. And I like a little bit of intellectual history too. Remember, the reigning scientific uh, paradigm around these bodies is women are a subset of men, but black people are intellectually inferior. Well, if this is the case, why in the world would you train enslaved women to do the same work that white, surg uh, white surgical assistants had done, who were your apprentices and had gone to medical school? Unless you knew through practice everything that was written was not true. That's what I call racial cognitive dissonance. It's the same way you can say Jefferson can write about black people, black women in particular, preferring to mate with animals rather than having sex with black men in Africa. But you could build a, a secret bedroom next to yours in Monticello for Sally. Racial cognitive dissonance. The same way, same way that they could experiment on black women's bodies who were supposed, supposedly inferior, but you knew that they had the same cervixes, same uteri, and you knew that whatever you developed on their bodies would be used to fix white bodies. So it's interesting that you have this set of like really ignorant black women, also illiterate, and yet they were the team that helped you actually develop the surgical, the surgical technique that gives you fame. I'm like, he kind of got it right when he worked with that team instead of the two surgical assistants. But you know, that's just me, right? So there are a lot of things that you can you can read into this, right? And you have to read between the lines when you do this kind of history, because I don't have records from the enslaved people. They're all records from the doctors, from the owners, right? So I have to read between the lines. If black people didn't experience pain, why did you still need surgical assistance to restrain them? It's all there. You just have to, when you start to place the patients first, as opposed to the doctors, then you start to see right, things from another perspective. And that's all I did. So after the surgery, boom, Sims publishes this article on vesicle vaginal fistula, 1852. By 1855, world renowned. Establishes the hospital in New York. There are all of these articles in tribute to him. This is one of them. Look at the nurse. Look at the patient. I'm like, unless everybody in Alabama looks white, if you see the pictures, and people typically, they'll remember a picture. Sometimes they won't even remember the narrative or the text. Now, the text was servitors, slaves, servants, negresses. The pictures are of a white nurse who is essentially inserting that medical instrument while Sims just holds the patient who's fully clothed, even has on shoes, right? And this is an insane person. Sims never said it wasn't. And Sims is also, I have to say that he's not the one who drew this. The editor and the illustrator decided that this was the image that would be used. Sims had worked on other enslaved people before, right? Doing oral surgeries. Always woodcut, woodcut illustrations of the enslaved person. Lest we think, once again, he was unique. Remember the former, former surgical assistant he sold the hospital to? He publishes an article. Same place in, in Alabama. And like I said, unless every enslaved person in Alabama looked white, there's an issue. 
all of a sudden you have an erasure of of blackness and slavery from gynecology. So now it made sense to me in 2005 when I was beginning this dissertation research where people are like, why? There's nothing there. I don't want slavery and, and medicine. I don't see the connection. Well, of course, if we looked at the, the sources that were left for us, how would we know? There was literally an erasure that had been done. Now, I'm gonna hurry up because I wanna get your questions and comments. This is the really interesting thing for me. So if I can go back to the beginning when everybody thought I was doing all of this like stuff to organize things, and I was like, no, I just wrote a book and had nothing to do with these, you know, with these protests. But what was really interesting though, a lot of the protests tended to focus on Sims not asking enslaved women for in, uh, consent, the fact that he made enslaved people work um, as his nurses and surgical assistants, and those tended to be the kind of ethical concerns that people had, right? Oh, and that he wanted to, to mangle the body of enslaved patients. And I was like, uh-uh. slavery was propagated through black women. Trust me, a slave-owning physician is not going to want to mangle any enslaved woman's reproductive organs. Why would you do that? How are, how are slaves going to be born? How's your wealth going to be regenerated? Doesn't make sense for him to do that. And he entered into legal contracts with their owners. You do that, you're going to get sued. He'll lose all his wealth. So I had to say that, and that's, like, I'm a black person, if you, if you hadn't noticed. I know we live in a Rachel Dolezal world, but I am black, I promise you. I promise you. Been black all my life. And so when I'm saying that, people are like this. Oh, gosh, is this a black woman defending Sims? No, this is just a black woman telling you the 19th century landscape and the facts. That's all I, that's all I am. Because to me, I don't have to create a thing. Because what actually was, according to his writings, is far more interesting to me. Remember, this little hospital, out of those half dozen women, one of them had a baby by a white man. And the census marked out of 17 slaves that he owned or leased, it marked one person is not Negro, but M, mulatto. So here I am putting the women first and not Sims. So when I read the census, I wasn't reading it as a determination of how wealthy he was. That's how everybody else who had written on Sims had written about him before. Oh, he, he owned at least 17 slaves, which meant his wealth was X, Y, and Z. I was like, what if we look at it from the women's point of view? Hmm, how many were male? Five, all of them children. So I can guesstimate that they're probably the children of the enslaved women. And then I start to look at race. This is the 1850 census. N, 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 M, mulatto, the youngest person on the plantation, little girl. So that lets me know this little girl was born during the experimental trial. Now, I don't know anything else. I don't know who her daddy was. Could be Sims. Maybe it was one of the surgical assistants. Maybe it was her own. I don't know, because the census can't tell you that. But I also know it's not outside the purviews of normalcy for a slave-owning white man to have sex with an enslaved woman. That's the ethical concern. So when Sims starts to write in his articles and his, in his autobiography, the community abandoned me about, you know, and, and my surgical assistants left during this time period. They started to say there were whispers that perhaps I was experimenting on these women like guinea pigs. Now, I'm a historian, I'm not a mathematician. I never did that well in math. However, I can't count. 
So I said, wait a minute. He starts talking about these people leaving him, withdrawing support, resigning around the same time she would have gotten pregnant. All I can do is ask questions. I may never get the answers to. But that for me became the more important ethical concern that during an experimental trial, a white man had access to an enslaved woman's body. Harkens back to Matawa. Had she stopped engaging in sexual intercourse, perhaps she could have been healed in a matter of time. So that's the question, right? For me, how do I keep the archives relevant and use the information that was left for us? And how do we attempt to read the silences? Eula Taylor, wonderful historian, has a great article on reading the silences especially when you're reading archival sources that don't come from the very people that you study. Right? So those are the questions that I was left with and that I, I still ponder and that centers biomedical ethics for me. It also is the thing that makes this really important. How do I put this in conversation with the present? What's the legacy of medical racism now? When Dr. Hurd mentioned those stats, that was from, and I knew, UVA's 2014 study. I can pick on UVA because I was a postdoc there, right? 2014 study published in 2016 makes a huge splash. And literally when I've taught this to students and Charlotte Fett and I wrote uh, a, a commentary for the American Journal of Public Health and we also use those stats, one of the anonymous reviewers, are you sure? Am I sure? Child, I got receipts. I can give you all of them. Yeah, I'm sure. These people are literally being trained at a premier institution, much like UC Berkeley, where it is highly competitive to get in. And they are coming out with the same information about black people that Sims and his colleagues did in the 1830s. Incredible to me. And so when people are like, well, what can we do? I was like, number one, stop raising people, stop raising your children to be anti-black. That's not me being hyperbolic, that study shows that. You literally are raising kids who are getting into elite spaces who have ideas from the 18th and 19th century. That's number one. So it doesn't matter how well they're trained if they have those beliefs that my black patients are inherently uh, drug users. Their pain, the manifestations of pain and articulations of pain are fake. They're being histrionic. We can't believe them. They're on drugs. They have thicker skin. Their blood coagulates more. The women are hypersexual or lascivious. All of this stuff is like coming from Sims's time, from Cuvier's time, from Matara's time, from McDowell's time. And these are people in the 21st century, not the 20th, 21st, right? So that's number one. How do we raise people to not center anti-blackness? Because the thing is, everything that had been about patient blaming, especially with black women, white folk had been doing the same thing. Black women, are too, they're larger than white women. Um, the average American woman wears a size 14 to 16. I lived in the, one of the fattest states in the nation, Mississippi, for five years. Trust you me. <laughs> in the McDonald's line, you saw black and white women. I promise you. Black people might have been eating soul food. The white people were eating squash casserole I'm, and green bean casserole. Same thing, right? Literally. So I'm like, but black women are being punished for their diets? 
How? When the average American woman is wearing double digits. Shoot, I'm in double digits. I'm considered obese medically. So that's number one, patient blaming. Same thing, 18th, 19th century journals. Number two, it cuts, it, it cuts across race for white women. And I don't want anybody, any woman, any birthing person, I don't care who you are, what you are, what you are, no one should be dying when they're giving birth. Their children shouldn't be dying when they're giving birth. So that lets me know that for white women, the, the markers are education, class, all of those things matter. For black women, it doesn't. CDC reported, do you know who the most vulnerable person in the African-American population to give birth and suffer from maternal morbidity or high-risk pregnancies? Someone like me, a black woman with a PhD. Once again, that anonymous review, can you give us facts? Yeah, I can give you lots of facts, unfortunately. I'm at more risk than even a black woman with a high school uh, diploma. So once again, the, the, the markers for black folk don't even measure up to the markers with white folk. It doesn't matter about our education, our class, none of that. So it has to be, how does the medical profession change the way it looks at, treats, examines black folk, where it's not replicating these 18th, 19th century ideals? Number two, right? And in New York, where I still have a home in Brooklyn, um, and uh, in California, you all have, are actually ahead of the curve in many ways in terms of the ways that this state is taking very seriously the concerns of uh, maternal morbidity and infant mortality. Um, it's largely done, to the, done by the work of reproductive justice and birthing justice activists and medical practitioners. So I thank you. I know some of you are here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but these are the folk who are doing it. I did a BBC program. I was shocked. This happened in the UK. Same thing. Same thing. I'm like, geez, it's safer for me to have a baby in the places that we like to denigrate. Remember Trump called them shithole countries? It's safer to be a black person in a so-called shithole country and have a baby than it is in the U.S. If I could ever get pregnant, I'd rather go to Ghana, Rwanda, Nigeria and have a baby than in Brooklyn, New York, where the risks are higher. And that is, that was startling for me. In America, I want for the medical practitioners, and you all probably know this, I'm probably teaching it to the, you know, repeating this and telling it to the choir, form alliances within the United States. Immigrant groups do a really good job. Asian um, women, kind of pan-Asian across the board, have much better numbers in terms of the maternal morbidity. I'm like, when I found out, I was like, we need to be doing something. What are y'all doing in your communities? Because you're doing it right, right? So having those kinds of alliances as well helps. So this is essentially why I am you know, running myself ragged and kind of having these conversations, because the past is really important. But how in the world do we make sense of it for the present um, crisis that we're in, right? And it takes all of us, right? So the very things that historians of, so historians of medicine have known for a really long time Right? Other people haven't known, and, and same thing with me. There are certain things I didn't know. And so we have to be able to have these conversations outside of these kind of hallowed spaces right? and have a kind of um, 
accessible style of communication. So you never really hear me use a lot of jargon. When I do, I always define it because I, I want everybody to be on the same page, right? Um, and so I will stop with that, but I'll just say that um, with me doing this work, it had led me literally to the, to the realization that black women had stood as symbols for literally humanity and science. And so I was really, really, um, and I don't typically use this word, but I'll use it intentionally today, blessed to be able to have a subject matter that um, allowed me to show that. And also I would like to dedicate this talk to the memory of Claudia Booker, who was a midwife who recently passed uh, in DC. So thank you very much. We have about 10 minutes for questions. I can come around with this mic if anyone would like to pose a question to our speaker. Um, my question is, so like as a person that wants to enter the medical field, can you hear me? Um, there, as a person who wants to enter the medical field, like how do we, like and as a historian, how do we confront like the structural legacies of medical racism like from the perspective of medical education? Because I feel like there's a lot of, implicit things that are that continue to perpetuate these 18th and 19th century ideals that are already just sort of embedded within how we train doctors so you know how I don't know from an academic standpoint like how as a student can you address those issues yeah that's a great question I know I'm looking at Dr. Karen Scott who is here if you just wait yeah she's a OBGYN and I think master of public health and all of these all of these things right where she's entering the academy academy there's another um dear colleague of mine in New York Uche Blackstone who is also a black OBGYN doing amazing work and she wrote a piece um maybe a few weeks ago about why she left um the academy I would say it has to be with medical education you know, I'm not the kind of person who's going to have a bullhorn and be in front of a statue. Jewel invited me for the year anniversary of that picture, and I said my little piece, and I was like, just let me take these buttons off and go to the, because I'm, I'm scary. I'm just, that's who I am. I'm not trying to go argue with folk. But what I know I can do is help to change curriculum. And so that's where I can stay in my lane and also see it as advocacy. So I'm able to talk to, I just gave a talk about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago in South Dakota, is even whiter than Nebraska, where I live. And I was speaking to a group, but also there was like a little camera set up for the med school. The chair, this white man from South Dakota originally, the chair of the OBGYN department was like, I need you to write us something. We need to understand this. We need to do better. And so those are the kinds of things. What are the books that you suggest? What are the So I'm able to be in conversations with people because I'm also running a medical humanities um, program. I'm also able to change the curriculum um, in places where sometimes we don't think about racial health disparities. I am always going to hospitals and um, you know talking to people about what they can purchase in terms of their curriculum. Karen Scott and I are supposed to be doing some stuff to change the the medical curriculum in in California. So she has some things um, where she's doing that. I do webinars. I mean, so for me, it's about how do we supplement some of these really outdated books. Um, how are we continuing professional development, particularly for hospitals in underserved communities where people just don't have access and time and they're kind of inundated with patients and work and all of those kinds of things. So how do we create space 
for those folks to be able to, to continue to learn. It's a long, hard trek, um, but I, as an academic, I'm also constantly putting myself in places where um, it's, I'm not just kind of speaking to other academics, I mean, I say that and I'm at Berkeley, but I promise you, I give talks in different places as well and I have webinars. Um, so that tends to be the way for a lot of people who aren't able to afford those things and they're really interested in reading lists as well. So I'm constantly doing that too. Mm -hmm. yes. Yes. Thank you for your excellent talk oh, and shout out to a fellow New Yorker. Well, oh, you know, yeah. your roots are Southern, but um, why, I don't, you, you said what the crux of it is that the more educated African-American women and then in England too, are dying, you know, at higher rates, but why? It's very counterintuitive, mm -hmm. so can you put some light on that? Yeah, Thank you, you know, I, I get asked that a lot, and this is me, this is an educated guess, because I don't know, but my educated guess is the ways in which we um, interact with people who are not used to our presence. So, for instance, I have had a lot of jobs before I became an academic, and they were typically low-wage earning jobs. So when I was a receptionist, when I did manual labor, when even when I taught fourth grade, people had an expectation that I was supposed to be in those environments. Now when I go to places, it is, you know, I can do it. I don't have kids. I got a little bit of disposable income, so I'm almost always in first class. You know, and I can see that there are people who are visibly upset I'm in that space with them. They don't say it, but I'm like, I've been black for 47 years. And I'm also a black person who's married to a black man who looks super white. Like he looked like his white mama and sound like his black daddy. So I have a hypersensitivity and awareness to how people treat me and how they respond to me. Because for 20 plus years of my life, I've been with a person who looks white. Um, and so I am always looking at that and I absorb it in ways that my sister, who is in a public school system in a largely black city, Oftentimes we'll go places and I'm like, did you notice how that person spoke to you? And she's like, no, because also she doesn't go to the restaurants that I tend to go to. She doesn't go to the stores that I go to. She's not riding, you know, she doesn't take plane rides. So I think sometimes just by the very space that I occupy, I'm almost always the only person who looks like me. I am the only person of color in my entire department at Nebraska who is not affiliated with the ethnic studies program. I am one of two black women in the entire country who runs a medical humanities program. I work at a place that library company of Philadelphia where Tom, I'm, I'm sorry, Benjamin Franklin founded it in 1731. I'm so, I am almost always the only person who looks like me, unfortunately. And so when you're in those spaces all the time, you absorb things and you are treated in a way where it impacts you on a cellular level. So when I go home, I'm very clear. I don't, I only look at black shows. I'm for real, I, I've seen every episode of Good Times and West, I mean, they're not even good black shows, many of them, but I just wanna see black people because I don't get to see myself. I write about, I have to teach the history of Western medical tradition. I'm talking about Greece and Rome and, you know, so I think it is largely because of these experiences that tend to be really unique experiences. And there are these racial and class, you know, kind of 
um, intersections that can be quite deadly. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 there are lots of, re- but those are just kind of some of my observations and some of my kind of ruminations and hypotheses on it. Um, my life was a little less complicated on the class divide. And I'm not, you know, when I, I'm not trying to in any way romanticize poverty, but when I had those low wage earning jobs, you know, there's a particular way I think that people who don't have money kind of expect to be treated. You don't expect to be treated well anyway. Um, and so when I got a little teeny bit more, um, I was shocked, I think, um, that there was a lot more resentment. And so a lot of the resentment um, comes about because of who I am and the places that I can access. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I am a doula and a student of midwifery at UCSF. All right. <laughs> I spoke there almost a year ago. Yes. My question for you is how you feel that gynecologic providers from, you know, can address this legacy and address the Ooh. silence in the work that we want to do. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Um, I think they, some of them just don't know. They don't think this is important. This is the humanities part that they don't think is important. Um, it's like, you know, I began, Charlotte and I began a, um, our public health commentary piece, and it was me who kind of set this up with Ralph Northam, the governor in Virginia, who was, you know, kind of become, became infamous because of the photos of him in blackface. And he addressed it. I mean, what can you do, right? <laughs> photos of him. But then he says, but I'm a doctor and it takes a doctor to heal the nation. I was like, sir, you were a doctor in med school with blackface. And you were a pediatric surgeon at that. And you couldn't even see, right, coming from that environment, he couldn't even see how anti-blackness was infused in his being because it was so normal for him. I mean, I, I went to high school in South Carolina across the street from a cotton field. Our mascot was a golden boll weevil. That's how country, you know, I am. And I recognize race in that way and racism in that way. And so I think many of them just don't know. They think, oh, we're here to help people. But they don't recognize the, the kind of power of anti-blackness, but also the fact that they don't like poor people. And so they will treat patients horribly because they don't speak a certain way, address a certain way, or, you know, I, I do public speaking all the time and I've been in doctor's offices and they will literally say, what, I don't understand you. And I was like, that's funny because I just got a $10,000 check for speaking. <laughs> but you don't understand my words, really? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So it's that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, what do you do again? Oh, my goodness. What? Wow. What's, what an interesting topic. But just a few minutes ago, you were yelling at me as if I was a mumble rapper. I mean, you know, so it's they don't know. So unfortunately, we have to be able to continue to say, why don't we have this person come or this uh, workshop? Or what about this book as a supplementary um, book? Or if you have a reading room library in there, create spaces where they're available, um, but we have to keep making noise. Yeah. Okay, we have two final yes. questions. Yes. So Dr. Marshall over there. Thank you, Thank you so much You're for welcome. this. I, I feel blessed, really, from hearing oh, you speak. Thank, thank you. you. Um, 
I'm a public health person, so my tendency okay. is to want to ask a health question, but I'm not going oh, to. Good, because girl, I'm a historian. I write about dead people. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to ask you something different, okay. which is I loved your uh, discussion of exceptionalism, right? And I think we have this tendency to do this in a lot of spaces. And I'm wondering, which I think is a way that people my thought on it is it, it's, it allows us um, not to confront what's really there. And mm -hmm. like you said, see it on a structural level. So I guess my question for you is how, when you're t speaking and you're doing your work, how do you confront this tendency to make people exceptional? Yeah, it's, so I always say, and this is a joke, um, the only person I consider exceptional is Harriet Tubman, but there are lots of reasons why. <laughs> but most folk are not. Most folk are not. Um, and it's easy because I think when we study the past, we want to have good guys and bad guys. And the world is much more complicated than that. And so we also can't say, we have to attack these structural things, right? Whatever the things are that we define them to be, and, but yet you wanna just focus on this one person. And so I remember being on a panel with a couple of activists in New York, and they were like, we're gonna do this to the Sim statue. And, we, and I was like, okay, and then you're gonna have to go to to Columbus, and then you're gonna have to go to the Daniel Webster one, and then you're gonna have to go to the Teddy Roosevelt one, and then you're gonna have to go to, because Sims is no worse than anybody else who did all of those things back then. He's one in the number. And so for me, it's about, are we going, and I'm not, and I don't want people to take this as me putting down their work. I'm not doing that at all. I'm happy the community spoke and people responded to the community's demands. However, the focus on Sims can have us lose sight of what's really important. And so for me, what was really important was this. That's what we're still dealing with. So whether his statue was there or not, these numbers haven't changed. So how do we get these numbers to change? So that's what I had to, excuse me, that's what I had to be focused on. And exceptionality narratives um, you know, once again, it kind of reduces things to a kind of historical boogeyman or woman or person. And I'm not necessarily focused on that in my research at this point, right? And, and it doesn't interest me as much. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I'm a Nigerian um, undergrad here, and um, I hear you in regards to thinking about building alliances across, you know, like communities and immigrant communities and sort of, you know, this mystery around um, childbirth and women's health and the way that, you know, traditions, I'm happy that they're starting to come mm -hmm. up again, but they've sort of been, um, you know, demonized in a way and um, medicine is sort of brought up this idea that like this is more pure, you know, when you give mm -hmm. birth in a delivery room, that's like more sterile and all mm -hmm. these ideologies. Um, and I'm also wondering, right, like in terms of communities building alliances, um, I also know that colorism is a big thing when it comes to taking care of women and taking care of, you know, poor women in particular. Um, of course, colorism also ties into income levels and um, educational access and just ease of life in general, right? Like how do we as black women start to address these things within our own selves and within our communities in terms of healing mm -hmm. and sort of getting to a place where, you know, there's this understanding that um, we're all we've got essentially, right, in terms of thinking about ancestral heritage and these really, really traditional um, ways of taking care of ourselves. Thank you. What's your name? Ifechuku. Ifechuku? Yes. Girl, you just answered your question. You literally did. You answered it. You discuss it, you have community, you build community. 
Um, you know, in terms of the colorism and the set, I mean, it's it's there, unfortunately. <clears throat> I think, um, you know, we are a lot more open about it. We are discussing it. You know, people are, um, I think, a lot more uh, open to rebuking those who invoke that foolishness. Um, so that's wonderful, I think. The, but in terms of, I don't know how it is in Berkeley, but I do know when I lived in Brooklyn, there was a real divide between... Um, people who were African-born and Caribbean-born and those who were American-born and not the children of immigrant folk. And so, you know, I always have to remind them, SUNY Downstate, which is in um, Brooklyn and in New York, I was like, guess who the black folk who, whose numbers resemble those? They're Haitian and Jamaican. Because those doctors don't care about your ethnic background. All they see is black. So it makes sense for us to be able to have community and allyship around those things. Because a lot of folk are coming from where I'm from. In my hometown, everybody can almost change, trace their ancestry to that county to the 18th century when it was a colony. I live in a very black, white world in South Carolina. So this room looks very different. Like if you say Caribbean, they're like, what? They know West Indian, and that means Jamaican. If they say Spanish speaking, that means you're Spanish and you're Puerto Rican or maybe Mexican. It is a world that is solely black and white, and families have been there for centuries. So I'm constantly having to tell people in Brooklyn, the world, the rest of America doesn't look like Brooklyn, right, or Berkeley. And so I think in these spaces where you are, you just build alliances. You build alliances and you hear each other out. That's where you start. But you, you uh, other stuff, you're like, we all we got. We, I was like, okay, check one, check two. You said it all. I was like, I, yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cooper Owens and everyone for attending today. Let's give her another round of applause. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. 